From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, she makes it easy and helps keep more money in your wallet. This is For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Haq. Welcome to a new episode of For What It's Worth. I'm your host, Rabina Ahmed Haq, and we're getting pretty close to the start of the new school year. I know that I have already started my back-to-school planning. I'm trying to call it back-to-school planning this year rather than shopping because really what I'm doing right now is I'm going through the inventory. I'm trying to figure out what I already have at home. I'm scouring all the sites that I have where I can get free stuff. I'm on all these Facebook sites where we give away stuff for free. We have a great community, a few neighborhoods together, and I'm seeing what parents are giving stuff away that I could use for my kids. And I'm also as well uh, giving stuff away uh, that my kids no longer need or they've grown out of. And then I've got a couple of things that my kids uh, need this year, definitely some new clothes because they've grown out of the stuff from last year, uh, some hoodies, things like that. So we'll be doing some shopping uh, later this a week for sure to get some of that stuff. But one thing that parents uh, often think about right now is how much money they're spending on their kids to send them back to school. But I want to flip that a little bit because parents should also be thinking about the opportunity right Right now to talk to their kids about money. There is a survey out by TD Bank that says that three and five Canadian parents worry often about their children's financial future. And a lot of the reason is, is those same parents feel like they did not get the financial literacy they needed that they can now pass on to their children. So they stumbled when it came to their money. They worried about how they were going to save for their future. They weren't given those tools. And back to school is an excellent time to bring your kids to the mall to find those teachable moments so that you don't become one of these three and five Canadians. So majority of Canadian parents feeling like, you know, I really just never talked to my kids about money. And now I'm worried that they're not going to be able to survive especially as they go off to college or university, because for the first time, uh, your child, your young adult child will be dealing with money on their own. And in many cases, it's tens of thousands of dollars. So it's all the money uh, that they would get from either uh, a loan, so a student loan. Uh, they could. It's also uh, money that maybe you've taken out of their RESP if you've been saving in there and they are now going to pay their tuition and other costs with it. Or they could be making their own money too, right? And trying to pay for some of their expenses. But if they don't have the tools of how to manage it, they could easily use it in the wrong way. Um, parents generally understand that having financial literacy skills, having financial knowledge is a good thing. 89% say in the same survey by TD that they would feel more confident if their child had improved financial knowledge before their teenage years. So here's my message to parents of young kids. You know, back to school, one opportunity, definitely to teach your kids about uh, needs versus wants, how to shop for the best value, how to do comparison shopping, how to find the right deals, how to have delayed gratification. Because some things you may not need until October or November, for example, winter boots or other things that may not be necessary just now. So you can wait for those purchases down the road, see if they go on sale, see if something comes up that you like better, maybe better value. That is you know, delayed gratification, which definitely will save you money because you're making a more informed decision. Uh, but not just back to school shopping. You should really employ this feeling that whenever there's an opportunity to take them grocery shopping, to make a big financial decision, even if it's something that you think is beyond them. So for example, if you're doing a renovation in your home, 
have that conversation openly with them about how much it costs for materials, for labor, for the for the contracts, for the permits, for the drawings, right? So this is a big project that a lot of Canadian families have taken on doing renovations in their home. Why not involve your children so that when they do a renovation, they will feel that much more savvy about it. And the reason I say this, that back in 1994, when I was just a wee teenager, my parents did a really big renovation in our home because at the time, we were a family of five and we had outgrown our home. And so the two choices were we should either move to a bigger home or we should expand the home that we are in. And my dad put it to a vote. There was five of us. We all had an equal vote and we were going to decide the future of our family. And we decided to stay. And so instead of upgrading a house, our house and moving to a bigger home, he used that money. My mom and dad did. They used that money to expand the home that we are in. They added a bedroom. They added another living space. They added more storage. And that made our home, our family of five, much more comfortable. Now, it's a privilege to be able to do that. I'm not saying that this is something that everyone can do. But I do really recognize the tools that my dad and my mom and dad gave us back then by involving us in the conversation, by putting the numbers in front of us, saying this is how much it would cost to move. And if we use that same money, we could do this kind of renovation, right? Because there was only X amount of money. So you have to use that money to do either this or that. What do you think would be the better decision for you? And my brother and I were both in high school. We didn't really want to move high schools. My youngest brother, he didn't really have as much of an opinion because he was younger and he didn't really see the pros and cons as much as we did. We saw a big pro in staying because we got to keep our friends who we'd had since we'd moved to that house. Or I, I moved to that house. My brother was born when we after we bought that house. So that there is definitely lessons I learned from there that when I did my own, you know, fast forward 35 years almost, uh, when I did a renovation in my own home, I had those skills, those critical thinking skills of, is this better or that better? And I involved my children in those decisions. I made them know how much things were costing so that they have those skills when they get older. And I think that we can do this in our everyday lives, uh, whether it's just shopping for everyday items, whether it's doing a big renovation, whether it's booking that vacation, involve your children and tell them the numbers. This is family finances. They should know how much it costs for this family to do all the things that they do. And so I really want to implore, especially to parents of young kids, to learn from the fact that this survey says three in five Canadians parents, Canadian parents frequently worry about their children's financial future. Don't be one of those parents. Start talking to your kids about money now. Start teaching them things that you know that they can easily learn and then build on that, that life skills that when they get older, they can put that into practice and save money and be that much more savvy about their decisions. We have a fantastic show coming up. Affordability in this country remains a huge topic of concern. Young people especially are finding it harder and harder to get into the real estate market. The federal government's come up with a program called the First Home Savings Account that has come under some criticism that where do people have $8,000 a year to put into this account? We're going to talk to the chief product officer of a company called Arboro. Alex Corvin uh, says that his company helps young people especially achieve that 20% down payment uh, in their new home. Uh, they're helping buyers uh, afford that first piece of real estate. So when we come back, we're going to hear that conversation as well. Later in the program, if you're really finding it difficult to manage your debt, if you're finding that every time you get paid, all of your money disappears before you have anything left to save or for anything extra, and that your debt continues to mount, we're going to be talking to Taj Rajans. She is with Bromwich and Smith, a licensed insolvency 
trustee, and she's going to talk to me about how we can get out of debt quickly if we're finding our debt overwhelming. We'll have both of those conversations coming up. I'm Rabina Ahmad Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Hawk. When it comes to affording a home, especially your first home, the amount of money needed to make it happen can seem impossible. The government's come up with a number of programs to help first-time home buyers, such as the newly introduced First Home Savings Account and the previously available First-Time Home Buyers Incentive and Home Buyers Plan. And we are going to get into that in just a minute. But a new financial company called Arboro say they can also help buyers get into the market. They help achieve a 20% down payment in return for an equity share in your home. To explain how Arboro works and why it may be for you, we are joined by Alex Corvin. She is Arboro's Chief Product Officer. Welcome to the program, Alex. Thank you, Rabina. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Now, tell me, did I explain what you do properly? Is that what Arboro does? Is It takes an equity stake in the home and helps that buyer achieve that 20% down payment? That's absolutely right. We provide an equity investment in the form of a down payment contribution. And in exchange for the portion of down payment that we contribute, we receive a share of the future appreciation on that property. If the property increases in value, we get paid. If it decreases, we do not. So it's very much an investment alongside the homeowners. And I'm assuming it would depend on how much money that that home buyer has already saved up. If they've saved up 12%, then you you would meet it. You meet them at 8%. Is is that how it works? How do you calculate how much you're going to lend them? Yeah, that's actually a great point. There's this common you know misconception that Arboro gets such a large share of the equity, but the amount of equity or the amount of appreciation we get when that home is sold is just proportionate to the amount of investment we initially made. If on day one, the homeowner puts in three times more towards a down payment than Arbro does, then when the property is sold, they get three times more of the profit. So as you mentioned in the intro, Arbro helps homebuyers reach a 20% down payment. So in our model, homeowners can contribute anywhere from 5 to 15% of that 20%, and Arbro essentially puts in the difference to get them to that 20%. Now, this really does meet a need uh, in the market. I explained, you know, I sort of illustrated some of those programs that have been made available by the government and the first home buyers initiative uh, incentive, rather, sort of mimics kind of what Arboro is trying to do or is doing. Um, what need are you meeting in the market right now from your perspective? Yes. I mean, as any buyers in the market now are fully aware of, property pricing prices are rising much faster than the rate of savings. And we know that residential real estate has been one of the most stable forms of generational wealth creation for like the past 50 years. Um, and less and less people are able to access that investment vehicle. And of those who are able to access homeownership, close to 30% of Canadians are getting money from the bank of mom and dad for that down payment contribution. So for those who don't have the access to you know, the bank of mom and dad or don't feel like sharing a space and living with friends or family, that's the need. That's the gap we're trying to bridge. We're trying to help people break into the market. Those who've done the math and realize that co-investing, having a share of a property is still significantly better than renting and spending another decade trying to save enough. So with Arbro, they can bridge that down payment gap today, break into the market now, start building equity to buy their next home. 
And if the market follows what it's done in the last 50 years, they would be well positioned to purchase their next home without us. And and that is another question I want to ask is the relationship between uh, your client uh, and yourself. Um, once that home is purchased, you don't really have to, to deal with them until they decide to sell? Or is there a time limit of when they would have to pay that money, that equity share back? Yeah, wonderful. So our co-ownership model allows buyers to co-own with us for up to 30 years. During that period, the buyer can sell their property at any time. So we are, for like first and foremost, our relationship with buyers is a partnership. We are not a lender. We are an investor. And when I use those terms, it's not just semantics. It, it truly is the sense that Arbor only gets paid if the home increases in value. And we're at risk of losing like all, all, all of our investment if the home depreciates. Lenders, on the other hand, are guaranteed a repayment on their loans. So because we have this alignment of incentives with the homeowners, where we're very much invested in seeing the properties grow in value, we are there to support the homeowners while they're in their properties as well, too. We offer programs and services, renovation credits, home maintenance support, as an example, to really help protect that investment, because we know it's in both of our best interests for the properties to increase over time. Um, Arbro investors, we can't recall our money and push the home buyers to sell. Like our, our investors can't do that whenever they please. But the buyers, the homeowners can choose to sell their property at any time during the co-ownership period. And I wanted to talk to you because there has been a lot of reporting about Arboro and, uh, you know, you mentioned there that we are co-investors, we are not lenders. What are some of the misunderstandings that you want to clear up that that people may not know about Arboro and what you do? You know, thank you for, for that prompt. And yeah, that investor versus lender piece is a big one because as I mentioned, you know, it's not just the language. It truly is, speaks to the underlying risk that we take on. Um, but a big one that I, I love to be able to speak to is that there's, in reading some of the commentary and also just the way that Arboro is being talked about, there's this very prevalent misunderstanding from folks when they're looking at our model. And, and they're looking at how much equity a homeowner is giving up to Arboro when the home is sold and saying that is too high or it's foolish to give up that much equity. The false assumption that they're making there is they're comparing our model against owning on their own. When that's not the correct assumption, because for our buyers, owning on their own is just not an option. So it's it's not an available option. And if it were, obviously, that's 100% the, the better choice. We make we are very transparent. If you can afford to buy on your own, if you have access to that generational wealth, you know, the bank of mom and dad or family, that is the better option. You get 100% of the upside. But otherwise, the comparison needs to be made against renting. So in those instances, like people need to focus on what a home buyer does get in a co-ownership sale, not what they give up, what they actually get, and compare that as if they were renting. So they are when they co-own with Arbro, they are able to access residential real estate, an investment that has a return profile, that has a proven track record, an investment that they would not otherwise be able to access whatsoever without a program like Arboros. So that's important thing. It's not comparing against what you would give up if you're owning on your own, because that's just not an option. It's comparing against the expenses that you're incurring if you had to continue to rent for 10 years. And by those regards, like getting into the market and earning equity gives you very much a leg up to break into the market and then use that equity to buy your next home on your own. So this also kind of dovetails into another misunderstanding, which is that Somehow our bro gets, you know, this unfair share of the proceeds. And I mentioned this earlier, but I, I do want to emphasize like our share of the profit is directly correlated to how much we contribute. Um, you know, if, if a home buyer contributes three times more than we do on day one, 
they get 3x more of the profits. And it's always in, in our bros profits are always pair pursue to what the home buyer gets in the end. And we take the downside risk as well, too. If the property depreciates, we're at risk of losing our investment. There are several programs available uh, from the government, a new first home savings account, but specifically the first time home buyers incentive, which sort of mimics what our borough is doing. What's your opinion of that? And how is it different than, than what your company does? Yeah, that's a great question. And we get asked that a lot because you're right. The government's first time home buyers incentive program is positioned very much as down payment support. Um, and I think it's wonderful that the government is trying to offer more innovative options for first time home buyers. Unfortunately, for a lot of home buyers in the GTA, which is you know where our program has launched, that that CMHC program is is rather restrictive in terms of the the price restrictions, um, income restrictions, etc. The CMHC program does um, operate more like a loan, so there is an upside. There is a cap in terms of how much of that profit the government can take, but. There is also a downside limit. There is a guarantee of repayment in the sense that even if the property depreciates in value, buyers need to repay the funds up to a certain amount, right? Even in instances of that decrease. So those are these are very important distinctions that buyers ought to be aware of. And also very important distinctions from Arbro as well, too. Arbro doesn't have a, um, a cap on our profit that we can earn. But at the same time, there's no guaranteed repayment if properties decrease in value. Alex, thank you so much. This has been so interesting. Your company is doing very innovative uh, things to help, especially young people get into the market in a, in a place like Toronto, where the average detached home is now close to $2 million. It can seem unsurmountable to come up with that down payment and helping people get there. Um, giving them just one other option, I think, is, is an excellent way to provide a service uh, to a market that needs so many more options um, when it comes to borrowing and affording that first home. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Of course. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you. That was Alex Corvin, Arboro's Chief Product Officer. Arboro is a company that helps their clients get to 20% down payment. They say that they co-invest with you in the property uh, to help you afford that home. Just another option that's available, especially for first-time home buyers. There's the first home buyer's incentive that's available through the government, and Alex talked a little bit about how they are different from that. There's the, the first home savings account for Canadians so they can save for a down payment on their home. There's been some criticism launched at that, that who's got $8,000 a year lying around that they can put into this account. And also you'll never be able to save as fast as home prices rise. So even if you save that money today and use it six or seven years from now, it might've been better if you just borrowed that money and got into that home and seen the home value rise. But that's also a game of timing. And so not everybody is willing to play the real estate game that way. So just another option available through Arbro uh, for anybody who is buying a home to consider. That was Alex Corvin, Chief Product Officer, talking about how Arbro is helping people achieve that 20% down payment in order to get into the real estate market. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear a conversation that I had with an insolvency trustee about how to manage debt if it's becoming overwhelming. I'm Rabina Ahmad Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Huck. A new report shows almost half of Canadian workers are feeling overwhelmed by their debt. It was conducted by TELUS Health. It's their financial well-being report, and it shows more than ever 
we're just feeling really uncertain about our financial future. If this is something that you're feeling, my next guest is here to help you out with some practical tips to manage that debt and to stop feeling so overwhelmed by it. Taz Rajan is a community engagement partner at Bromwich and Smith, a licensed insolvency trustee, and she joins me now. Welcome to the program, Taz. Thank you so much for having me, Ruby. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is just your reaction to this TALIS Health report that says one out of two of us, so basically half of us, are feeling overwhelmed by the amount of debt that we're carrying. Yeah, well, I don't think it should be surprising to anyone. I mean, you look at inflation, you know, in June, inflation peaked at 8.1%, which is literally the highest we've seen inflation since the 80s. And I, I don't know about you or some of your listeners, but I remember my dad telling me stories about, you know, in the 80s, people were selling their home for a dollar. So, of course, half of us are feeling that overwhelm and that stress. You think about over COVID, many of us were not working, didn't have work, didn't have income maybe coming in for our businesses, but we were just holding on. I think that's what a lot of us Canadians did. We were just sort of like barely holding on by our nails and just we're so optimistic and we think that things are going to get better. But as we start to come out, you know, we're starting to see creditors take action now. We're seeing CRA take action, you know, on anyone who took CERB payments or some of those other things. Obviously at Bromwich and Smith, we've really seen, you know, insolvencies rise right across Canada. Actually, it's not necessarily even province specific. So, you know, it, it is a little bit of the sign of the times. I, I want to say though, these, these financial cycles are just that they're cycles this too shall pass but you know it's not surprising and if if you're someone listening today that's starting to feel overwhelmed like I hope there's a little bit of solace there going hey one in two other people are feeling this way I, I'm not alone so let's get into it if someone is feeling like okay I am one of those people I feel overwhelmed I'm not sleeping well at night because all I can think about is the credit card bill is due, the property taxes are due, I still owe money to someone I borrowed from to pay my last month's bill, and that can create a lot of anxiety that spills over yeah. into our work, into our relationships. What's step one if you're feeling that way? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, it really does, like finances and emotions, um, our mental and physical health are completely tied. So step number one is just to acknowledge it within yourself, even just to sort of stop and go, whoa, what's this pit in my stomach? Or, you know, what is this feeling that I'm having? And just even to acknowledge it is step number one. Um, step number two, and, you know, again, we know statistically most Canadians don't actually do or have a budget or like really work through any sort of a budgeting app, but really, truly a budget to me, that's your ticket to freedom. Having a budget is just knowing how much money is coming in each month, how much money is going out each month. And for me, it's a very empowering tool. Just see it as a tool and nothing else. It's a tool to see it, it sometimes for, you know, it, it'll help with that anxiety because sometimes anxiety is just all these thoughts we have in our mind, we haven't gotten anything down on paper. And a lot of those fears we have, or a lot of that anxiety is not based on fact. So when you actually have a budget and you've written down, 
This was my paycheck. This was rent. This was groceries, you know, whatever that was. It's fact-based now. And that alone can relieve a lot of that stress or pressure as well. If when you do that budget and you're seeing that more money is going out than coming in and you're starting to feel overwhelmed, you know, take that step of having a conversation with a professional and we can look at all sorts of different things, right? There's not just reducing the money going out. There's also ways to increase the money coming in. There's ways to look at, you know, dealing with that debt and maybe getting it um, taken care of. And then Step number three is just acknowledging that you are not alone and it is not the end of, you know, your financial life. You can and will be able to thrive again after you deal with that overwhelming debt that you're feeling. And you speak from experience because you've been through this whole situation and you are now mm -hmm. doing much better working now to help others with their finances. Talk to me a little bit about, um, your experience with debt and that feeling of just being overwhelmed by it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've been in the finance industry most of my adult life. And of course, you know, you think about when you're a child and you play bankruptcy, I mean, you play Monopoly, as soon as you hit bankruptcy, it's like game over, right? So obviously, having been in finance, this, this idea of being overwhelmed by debt and, you know, insolvency has always been this really big no-no, a very taboo. Uh, but I was working 100% commission position, living off of my savings and waiting for, you know, the pay to come in. You know, I didn't have any benefits and I was rear-ended. And that's, you know, we we see quite often in the work that we do is it's these external factors like an accident, you know, job loss, some sort of critical illness or disability or divorce or death of a spouse, these are these external triggers that can really take us from, you know, juggling our debt to feeling completely overwhelmed by our debt. So I I had a really bad concussion, I could barely sit up, I could not work. There was no income coming in, but the bills continue. And for me, I had a very large Canada revenue debt that was not going away. And the interest was just piling up. And so yeah, did I ever feel a alone? I really, truly in that moment, I felt like nobody else does this, which logically makes no sense, right? There would not be options for debt if nobody else ever struggled with it. But in that moment, I did feel like, you know, I'm the failure. I'm a loser. Nobody else is going through this. You know, how could I make such a huge mistake? How could I be in such a terrible position? And I mean, honestly, it was not necessarily through my own fault, but we do feel that. And there's so much stigma and shame around it. We don't tend to talk about it with other people. Of course, now I always talk about it. And you would be so surprised at how many people I talk to that are like, oh, I did bankruptcy too. Or I went through a consumer proposal too. And we're all thriving today. You know, I have the highest credit score I've ever had in my life because I dealt with the problem. I dealt with the issue and, you know, have learned and grown since that. And it's such mm -hmm. a passion project for me to be able to help other people do the same. Because we often talk anecdotally, you know, we're saving for that emergency, that leaky roof or job loss, yeah. but you live through it and you know exactly what that can do very quickly uh, to your finances and how much debt can pile up and then it can exacerbate other things that may be happening um, in, in your mm. life and just make those things worse. Um, a, a lot of debt comes from lifestyle choices. So things that mm -hmm. we decide, the car we decide to buy, where we want to live, 
Uh, what can we do right. when it comes to our lifestyle? What changes can we make that don't feel like we're depriving ourselves of something, but can really save a lot of money for a person who's trying to get out of debt? Yeah, uh, definitely. I am definitely not a joy kill and I'm not a proponent of, you know, some of the other kind of gurus that are out there that, that say, give up everything and, and live on nothing. Give up your and... coffee, live, <laughs> give live up your in coffee. a tent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Never go shopping. It's just, it's not sustainable and it's not realistic. And this is where, honestly, I, I know it's, I sound like a bit of a broken record. I know, but I'm going back to the budget because you look at your budget and you determine. I have a friend who, you know, when he was asked, how much do you spend at Starbucks? He's got two girls. They were in all these different activities. He's like, oh, I think 75 bucks a month. Goes and does his budget. And it's actually $400 a month. This was kind of their in between school and activity. This is where they would eat basically. And realizing that does not necessarily mean no more Starbucks. It means, hey, you need to adjust your budget. You're actually spending $400. At, and I mean, I'm just using one example. It could be at any store. Um, but now just adjust your budget. If, if that's a non-negotiable, listen, making meals at home, we don't have time for that. We're going to be doing this. Okay, now you've got to adjust something else. So I think it's really, it's very individual, very personalized. Look at your budget as this living document and figure out what are your values? What are the non-negotiables? And then where are the areas that you can make some adjustments, right? And if cutting back is not an option, you've got to look at ways of increasing income. And the other thing I want to say is, you know, a lot of people are like one or the other, you can be paying off debt and getting in a better financial situation while you are saving for that emergency, while you are saving for your retirement or your your mortgage or whatever that may be, you know, doing both at the same time, I think is really going to create that momentum. And it gives you something to look forward to as well. So that when you take away, maybe whatever, driving your car three times a week, you've got your eye on the prize. And you're like, I know that I get to buy that gorgeous purse at the end of three months, because I gave up my car for three days. <laughs> And you've mentioned a couple of times, uh, Taz, increasing income. That seems like a lofty idea. You know, oh, I'll just, I'll just make more money. But for so many people, we don't have the time, we don't have the resources, and we just don't have, uh, we just don't know how even to make that happen. How, how can someone increase their 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 income if, say, they're a full time salaried employee and they've got kids and other things happening in their life where they just don't have the time to do it? Yeah, I think, honestly, we're living in the best age and time for that. We have, you know, Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, all of those kinds of places. So springtime is a great time to maybe declutter your household and even sell a few things on Marketplace or some of these other areas. Um, you can get the kids involved as well. A lot of them are on spring break or they'll be on um, summer break. So even getting the kids involved in, you know, are they artsy? Can they sell something or can they babysit or, you know, can they sell their old, you know, sporting equipment? So that's one way for sure. So many side gigs and side hustle and, you know, business opportunities out there. My one caution on that is you've got to go in eyes wide open. You've got to make sure that it's legitimate. 
um, and that, you know, you are going to be on the upside of things. Uh, you know, a lot of people do come to us because they started a side hustle and it actually put them upside down. But I think there's a lot of different ways you can look at cash back options as well. So, you know, there's different apps for their, that there's different banking opportunities. There's like switching your shopping to places where you're getting the cash back. Um, and, and honestly, increasing income is 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 one side of that balance sheet so i mean we do need to also reduce some of those budgetary items that maybe you know aren't moving us closer to our goals as well taz it's been so great talking to you i know that i got a lot out of this conversation i know our listeners will as well uh just knowing that there is hope when you are feeling overwhelmed and you are a living, breathing example of that, of someone who's been through it and is doing well on the other side. So I think that's really inspiring to hear. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Taz Rajan is a community engagement partner at Bromwich and Smith. It's a licensed insolvency trustee. When we come back, I'm going to talk about a new report that shows that rent across this country is unaffordable to anyone making minimum wage. I'm Rubina Ahmad Haq, and this is For What It's Worth. From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, you're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina Ahmed Haq. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. report out by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives finds that rental wage in this country is continuing to rise, whereas minimum wage, even though we've seen them come up in many provinces, British Columbia, Ontario and Alberta, to name a few, is still not enough to afford an average one-bedroom apartment. It's called Can't Afford the Rent, Rental Wages in 2022. And what they did is they looked at how many people could afford a one-bedroom apartment on minimum wage using 30% of their salary in places across the country. And they found that since 2018, and this is data they compared 2018 to 2022, less people can afford an average one-bedroom apartment if they are just making minimum wage. There are actually only three cities in this entire country where someone making minimum wage could afford an average one-bedroom apartment. They're all in Quebec, Sherbrooke, Trois-Rivières, and Saguenay. And this really does highlight that wages need to come up quicker in order for Canadians to afford even a basic apartment. Because if that doesn't happen, there's going to be more and more people that will be spending more of their salary on rent, less of their salary on saving for the future, paying down debt, buying a bigger home, all those things that happen when you are able to put money aside. So if your desire is to rent uh, until you can afford to buy a home, how can you possibly save that down payment if you cannot save any money after you pay your rent and your other uh, major bills? Uh, if you go to the website rentals with an S.ca, they find that average rent in Canada right now is at a record high. For the month of June, rent was. on average of all the listings that they had on their website. 
That's the average. So a lot of people are paying a lot more. They said in the last year, rent inflation has gone up 7.5%. So these are for new listings. So those people who are renting, they have rent control. Their landlord can't all of a sudden raise their rents by 7.5%. But if you are back in the market looking for a rental apartment, you are looking at prices 7.5% more than last year. And they also showed through the data that they collect through their own website, through the listings that they have, that rents have gone up 20% in the last two years, or dollar value, $341 on average. And so that's making it impossible for some to afford even an average one to two bedroom uh, apartment. Uh, There's also some shift happening across the country where uh, places that were not as expensive are getting more expensive. Burnaby, BC being one of them. So rentals.ca says that Burnaby, BC has actually knocked Toronto off the second spot of the most expensive place to rent. Rents in that city have gone up 27% in just one year. So listings from now compared to last year at this time are 27% higher. The average one bedroom right now in Burnaby, BC, $2,600. And this is true across the country. So some places remain a lot more affordable. So those three places I, I, I mentioned to you in Quebec, places in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, there are definitely pockets in the country that remain more affordable where you can get a one-bedroom apartment for But in the major city centers, Vancouver, Toronto, across British Columbia, most of Southern Ontario, rents remain persistently high. And wages, even though they are perking up, they're not perking up fast enough for people to actually be able to afford an average apartment for them and their family. In Vancouver, the most expensive place to rent in Canada, the average one-bedroom apartment close to $3,000. And so this report by the Canadian Centre of Policy Alternatives really does highlight how unaffordable life has become. If you use that old math of 30% of your before-tax income should go towards shelter costs. So when you go to the bank, they will say to you, of your income, 30% of it can go towards paying your mortgage. And the same math should be used for renting. So if you're you're making $100,000, no more than $30,000 a year should go towards renting an apartment. If you're spending more than that, then you're probably living beyond your means. And what this report is saying is that in most cities, at minimum wage, nobody can afford an average apartment. And so that is a really difficult place for many people uh, to to be in, and also for governments and other uh, other uh, players to actually remedy this. So yes, we can build more housing, and yes, we can definitely have incentives for those who are in the lowest income bracket. But the real solution, the real solution, is wages. Is bringing up wages so they can meet the demand of these higher rents and continuing to have some rent control, even with new listings, if that is something that if government had the initiative to do that, that would make life a lot more affordable for many people who are looking for an apartment. Because the fear is, is that once you're in an apartment, you can't leave because then you're in that new market and it's so much more expensive. I want to thank you so much for tuning in today and listening to our show. I hope that you're out there back to school 
planning, not shopping, planning. But if you are shopping, I hope you're taking your kids with you. This is all about them. Make this a teachable moment. Teach them something about value for dollar, delayed gratification, whatever it is that's happening right now in your finances, teach them a few lessons about that. They are really going to use them later in their life when they become uh, young people in the world. They will have those financial literacy skills that you have embedded in them today. I want to thank you so much for listening. Uh, We will be back here, same time, same channel. I want to thank James Petrovic, our technical producer. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in for the last hour. If you have any questions, you can always email us through the website. You can go to our For What It's Worth page on uh, globalnews.ca and look us up that way and get in touch. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Rabina Ahmed-Huck, and this is For What It's Worth.